This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Five Live. Hello, I'm Chris Warburton and this is Beyond Reasonable Doubt, episode 18, The Last Few Steps. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Beyond Reasonable Doubt on BBC Radio, Radio Five Live. Now, this is, at the moment, our final look at this case, which began in December 2001. And we're still here because The Staircase on Netflix is still here and has stirred up a debate all over again. So let's start, as the tragic story does, with Kathleen Peterson. One of the things we've tried to do during this series is to put Kathleen at the heart of our story. We've talked to her friends and relatives and I hope we've painted a picture of a bright, vibrant, funny, sociable and family-loving woman. Now, you might remember from an earlier episode her neighbour Paul talking about parties at her house and how she would check people's breath before they left to see if they were OK to drive, even though she may not necessarily have been the best person to judge. Well, the staircase has been criticised for leaving her out and certainly looking at those last three films... It does look like Jean-Javier de Lestrade and his team have tried to correct that. There's the still photos of her at the end of one episode. We see Michael going to her grave. He remarks that because of the wind chimes hanging from the tree over the plot, she wouldn't like all that noise. Like, literally every article I'd read about it, or almost every article, had the same headline, which was, this is going to be your next, like, true crime obsession. And when I started watching the film, that kind of characterization seemed kind of gross, because the film just seemed to have this, like, kind of flagrant disregard for Kathleen Peterson and, like, who she was and, you know, like, why her death matters. Maggie Sorotta from Spin Magazine. She's kind of told through the prism of Michael, and you kind of have to take his word for it, like for the fact that she's apparently accepting of that they kind of have this open marriage and he's like dating men outside the marriage, which, I mean, it's not crazy. It's totally believable that, you know, a couple would have that arrangement, but it's just the fact that you have to take Michael's word for it. That's kind of unsettling. I just would have liked to have talked to more people who knew Kathleen independent of Michael. She, I mean, it's just like, she's a footnote in the story of her own death. And the fact that I don't really know who she is and why, her, you know, for her not being around is such a big loss, it kind of makes it difficult for me to care about whether, you know, like how Michael fares in this trial. If I'd only seen the last three parts... I'd still say this is a man who is obsessed with the sound of his own voice. Um, I did notice the home movies, you know, a nice touching uh, a tribute to his life, I suppose. But it's about a terrible crime. It's not about his life. It's not about his marine insignia. It's not about him swimming in the pool with his grandchildren. It's about the bludgeoning death of his wife, Kathleen. So, you know, there's a difference between Peterson and the director, although it's hard to tell. They seem to be an audience of two. It's time to welcome back Mr Tom Gasparoli, respected North Carolina columnist who's covered this case from day one and known to us and his readers as Gaspo. Credit to Lestrade 
for focusing more on the tragedy of the loss of that wonderful woman. But honestly, as someone who knows the case, it seemed like almost ham-handed overcompensation. It went to silence, you know, over three or four or five pictures of her toward the end, something I don't think it ever did before. And I think he was trying to make up for what he didn't do in the first 10 episodes. You may recall in a previous episode of Beyond Reasonable Doubt, we brought you the slightly surprising development that Sophie Brunet, the editor on The Staircase, had fallen in love with Michael Peterson and that they were having a relationship. We spoke to Paul, who's originally from Brighton, a friend and neighbour of the Petersons, and when we spoke to him and his wife last year, they were still in touch with Michael. Funnily enough, we have a close friend who's now deceased who took in one of the French filmmakers who subsequently fell in love with Michael, came back to Durham to visit him while he was in jail and in prison. And so I would hear via Sophie and my friend Jan updates about Michael because he would call the house. And then when Michael was released from prison... I never heard whether Sophie, what happened to that relationship, and I've got a sense it's not... But she stuck with him for a long time. Well, since Beyond Reasonable Doubt was first released, this story has come out, and Monsieur de Lestrade is quoted in Le Express newspaper as saying they had a real story, which lasted until May 2017. Am I right in thinking that one of the editors, the female editors, is now in a relationship with Michael Peterson? That's Will Gompertz, the BBC's arts editor, talking to the Staircase director, Jean-Javier de Lestrade, for the Five Live programme, The Heat Map. Uh, well, I'm not sure I want to go there in private, I think, in private life. Uh, uh, you have to ask her or Michael Peterson. But it's not necessarily untrue. She wrote letters when he was in prison, for sure. And uh, the, the, how can you describe their relationship or their friendship or what happened to her, to them? I can't really speak for them. But as a part of the production team, is that important to you that, that there is a line cross there? And yes, 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 yes. Of course. Yes, of course. Oh. Yes, of course. And but if I had just one second doubt that she was not the good person to cut the 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 the, the film, she she, she she would not not have been the the editor of the film. But um, that that's a, a woman I trust. A lot, and she's she's really, really, really a, a good professional, and 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 um, I, to me, it's she's well, she was uh, she was the right person to cut the film. She's off the project now. Uh, no, she's still. Uh, hmm. uh, well, we're finished, but uh, who knows with this story? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So should the makers of The Staircase have told their viewers about this aspect of the story? 
that the man at the centre of their film was having a relationship with the woman editing it. Jack Seal, the critic who writes for The Guardian and Radio Times and who gave The Staircase a five-star review, thinks not. I think, again, it's... I don't, I'm not sure if it's a question of it being one-sided or balanced because I think it's valid for it not to be that sort of documentary. I don't, I don't think it's... I don't think it's pretending to be a comprehensive analysis of the case. I think it's it's setting itself up to be we followed this guy as he was accused of, of murdering his wife and as he mounted a defence and as he went through trial. And this is what happened with him and his attorney and this is what happened after the trial to him. So, uh, I mean, I take the point about them not mentioning about the relationship between the, the crew member and the um, protagonist. And I think that's probably a sort of, I, I would say that's probably a forgivable omission in that if that happens, you sort of think, well, if we put this on the screen, that completely blows the whole gaff. So should we just not? I mean, you can say that that's unethical, but I, 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 can, I can forgive them for that, um, for that really. I, I, yeah, I don't think it's, it's really... I don't think the staircase is really purporting to be anything that it's not. And what I would say is that when I've spoken to friends who have watched it, the overriding theme of the conversation is, so do you think he did it or not? Well, if it was that one-sided and if it was that much of a kind of, uh, you know, an advert for the, for the defense, I'm not sure if people would be saying that. These things can happen in stories like this over long periods of time. People, people fall for each other, but, the film editor is an essential part of what a film looks like. And the essential part of the film was Michael Peterson. So it seems to me that in the film somewhere, before the film somewhere, you had to talk about that. You had to say something about it and not just say something in a newspaper story later. You know, the fact that they fell for each other, we don't know the details of that. We can't get inside Miss Brunet's mind to know if, it affected her editing, but it should have been disclosed. There's an interesting part in the new episodes where they interview Judge Orlando Hudson, and the clips of him suggest, or give the impression anyway, that the judge thinks that if Michael Peterson had a retrial, certain aspects wouldn't be allowed this time, and that this might might lead to a not guilty verdict. Here's an excerpt from an interview David Rudolph gave to Digital Spy. So how did you feel about Judge Hudson's comments that he regrets allowing certain things such as the bisexuality into evidence? Well, again, I was ambivalent. I thought he displayed great courage in saying that. Most judges probably wouldn't have admitted that. So I think it's to his credit that he was willing to not just say it, but to say it on camera, where it matters even more, on the other hand, I think those were decisions that should have been reached 15 or 17 years ago now. If they had been, you and I might not be speaking today. Here's what Judge Hudson told us. You know, the state introduced that evidence for a purpose. And the purpose was to show uh, these fine citizens who were serving as jurors that there was something deviant about Mr. Peterson. Of course, the state said he was deviant because he was a murderer. Uh, but that wasn't good enough for the state. They wanted to show that 
he liked to have sex with men and that although the state may have never said in any argument that, you know, homosexuals uh, or people who are bisexual uh, commit murder, in the South there's that implication that he, meaning Mr. Peterson, is not like the rest of us. And that's why they spent so much time uh, with that evidence. When you have that kind of evidence in a case and you're in the state, you use it as best you can. Sometimes it's not the most uh, reasonable arguments to make. Uh, I thought this case could have been tried without that coming in. Um, what? Mr. Harden didn't try it without it coming in. He didn't have to introduce that in the evidence. And, and, and even though they said that they totally just went on the physical evidence and that was what made up their minds. Is there something irresistible, you know, impossible to ignore almost about this idea of, of lightning striking twice? Um, yeah, I, I thought that was very damaging evidence uh, to Mr. Mr. Peterson. Clearly, he did not have a good explanation as to to what happened. Now, the authorities in... Uh, Germany said, as I recall, it was a cerebral hemorrhage. And that's a good argument. (laughs) The real damage to that was the medical examiner who did the examination after they uh, dug the body up. And when she held up her hand, there were five wounds. It looked like five fingers on her hand. And she said that um, the wounds and Miss Peterson were almost exactly in the same position as Miss Ratliff. And here's David Rudolph again talking to Digital Spy. Assuming that the Germany stuff would have been out and the judge indicated that it would not have been admissible and it never should have been admissible, and if the bisexuality evidence was out and it was never relevant and should have been out from the beginning... And, of course, Diva was all over the crime scene, which was what they called it. So, you know, I think the prosecution would have been hard-pressed to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But who knows? And if you're wondering why Mr Rudolph appears here in voiceover form, well, here's Mark again. Well, I emailed him when I knew we were going to make these two extra episodes and he didn't say no. He referred me to Netflix and gave me the name of a couple of press officers at uh, Netflix who were handling the bids. Um, So obviously I contacted them. Uh, They came back and said, "Okay, what time works for you? Now, some of the interviews for these last two uh, episodes we recorded in one day at uh, at the Five Live uh, studios in Salford. And um, the woman at Netflix explained that um, he couldn't make that particular day, but he could do the day after because he was busy with depositions. That's what um, um, she said. On that afternoon when we're about to record and we're told that Mr. Rudolph is uh, busy with depositions, he was extremely active on Twitter and, in fact, followed us both Mm. and then sent you a DM. Is that right? Yeah, which made it even more frustrating, didn't it, actually? Because we had this level of communication and he said to me, if you want to see more background about the case, then go to his quite slick-looking website and there's more information there. Uh, And I thought, yeah, great. And I said, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'll look at this ahead of our interview tomorrow. Um, And everything seemed fine in that respect, didn't it? 
The following morning, I got an email from Netflix saying that uh, the interview had now been cancelled. There was no explanation, no apologies. So I asked for an explanation and I was told that he was busy with depositions again. So that was the end of that. And I said, well, busy today or any other time uh, forever? And I have received no reply. So unfortunately, the interview was pulled from us. And on the same day, he unfollowed us on Twitter. I think the frustrating bit for us is that there were some questions that we really wanted to ask, weren't there, that we knew that you, the listener, would have wanted to have asked as well, no doubt about it. And I, I suppose one of those things was around what would have happened if the case had gone to a retrial and whether David Rudolph would have been there because we we got a pretty clear sign from the staircase in those last three episodes and from that call to Michael Peterson that he wouldn't have been, Mark. Yeah, I must admit, I was surprised when I saw that. And the film crew were around conveniently to record the conversation of of Michael Peterson answering the phone and David Rudolph explaining that he wouldn't wouldn't wasn't up to doing uh, the retrial. Uh, and there were lots of reasons given. Um, he gave an interview to Digital Spy, David Rudolph, uh, and they obviously put this question to him, and uh, he said. I've been trying to resolve the case, but I really didn't want to go through another four or five month trial. I just realized I was emotionally spent, that I couldn't go back and retry this case again and be as effective as I was the first time. And it just, what struck me about it was just seeing how close he and Michael Peterson, we've witnessed that at first hand. They appear to be, apart from you know the, the uh, client-lawyer relationship, they genuinely seem to be friends. And in fact, when we met, David Rudolph, uh, he talked very affectionately about Michael Peterson. It was just, it just struck me as odd and slightly counter to what we'd seen and heard. Mm. Um, it's worth noting, isn't it, that we appreciate that a lot of the listeners to this podcast are kind of obsessive around this case. Probably not as obsessive as you and I are, Mark, and that's why we're quite often scouring social media to see what people are saying about the staircase, what people are saying about our podcast as well. And we try to reply to those comments as much as we can. And I was doing just that the other day, and I noticed that someone had asked David Rudolph if he had actually listened to Beyond Reasonable Doubt. And what was his answer? No. So... On the face of it, if there was a retrial, as Mr Rudolph points out, and let's assume that the death of Liz Ratliff and the bisexuality evidence was ruled inadmissible and Dwayne Deaver's discredited blood evidence wasn't there, well, surely, the argument goes, there would be a good chance of an acquittal. When you say that the blood evidence wouldn't come in because of Dwayne Deaver, that's not true. Because Jim Harden was interviewed, if it was by you guys or by Daily Beast, I can't recall, but I do know that Harden was interviewed after the first uh, additional episodes aired in 2013, and his response to the Deaver problem was this. At that time, at least in, in our view, there were three renowned experts in blood spatter. A fellow by the name of Herb McDonald, Bart Epstein, and Terry Labor. We contacted Terry Labor and Bart Epstein. And they evaluated everything that Deaver did and everything that Henry Lee did. They came up with the same conclusions that Dwayne Deaver did. They, they had a little bit of differences in some of the uh, tertiary issues that he raised in his testimony and his, his examination. But the basics 
they concluded were absolutely on the mark in terms of how it happened and who was involved and generally what was going on within that scene. So, you know, and, and your listeners should know that the, the DA in this case, who I interviewed as well, says this would have been confirmed by two other bloodstain experts. Sure. So don't tell me that if he went to retrial, this is why he took the plea, because he wants to pretend that this is a corrupt justice system and that's why he took a plea, a guilty plea. No, 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 no. He took it because this, the bisexuality was going to come in. The fact that this, the, no one in the family knew about it and that they would testify to the character of Kathleen that she would never have tolerated any kind of cheating in her marriage would have come in. The fact that that particular night she was on his computer would have come in. The, the theory that this perfect marriage wasn't perfect and why would have come in. And we would have then had blood spatter experts testifying to the fact that this was a beating and an autopsy that showed that it was a beating and a strangulation. That was Aphrodite Jones, the author of A Perfect Husband, about the case. And just before, you heard an excerpt from my interview with the former prosecuting DA, now judge, Jim Hardin. Well, Kelly Colgan was on the original jury. So what did she make of Judge Hudson's comments in the new episodes? I was quite surprised. Um, I was a little disappointed because I do feel that those who don't know otherwise, that they will now think that he feels he made uh, poor judgment during the trial. I, I don't think he made poor judgment. So I was very surprised that um, he was so dismissive of the medical testimony and the autopsy findings that would come back into a retrial that he feels no one would pay attention to, that it seems, oh, I don't know, I guess seems everybody wants to pay attention to the, the things that seem to be so, um, you know, slanted or um, slandering of, of Michael as a reason to find him not guilty. And I don't know, I'm just, I struggle with the part where I think people will play into the emotion of it all and they really need to step back and, you know, really pay attention to the, the evidence itself. I mean, he, he obviously believed as well that you, you could tell that there was big question marks as far as he was concerned about whether the Liz Ratliff and the bisexuality evidence would be admissible again. Um, and we should remind ourselves as to how much of a part those two things played into your thinking anyway. You know, um, and I feel that I can speak for the most part for everybody on the jury about the Liz Ratliff piece. We never discussed that in deliberations. Whether or not that played a role in someone, did it play a role in somebody's mind? I, I don't know. I can't speak for them. But I feel pretty certain that you know, did you pay attention to it? Yes, but it was it a key factor? I strongly feel that it was not. And I, I feel pretty good that and confident that if I met one of us on the street again, <laughs> that if we had conversation, we would both agree that it was brought up in court. But easily without that testimony and easily without that story in all of this, that that would be still eliminated 
and you can still come to the conclusion that point blank, Kathleen had horrible, you know, injuries and wounds. She was the only one there. Michael was the only one there. There was no intruder. There is no other option. I mean, this was not an accident, and people really need to look at that. It, you know, the staircase doesn't really show well enough the the injuries, the scene that we got to see. They don't really review the autopsy all that well, or at least I didn't feel that they did. Um, it was not until Candace's speech in the courtroom on the day of his Alfred plea that, you know, she spoke a little specifically to the autopsy findings. So I really felt that they left that out. Um, that, that, to us, as a jury, was the key pieces. The medical testimony was the key pieces for our decision. Here's a brief part of a report by Julia Sims, who has also appeared on this podcast and who covered the case from day one. This piece, in which Julia talks to another juror, was broadcast on WRAL in Durham in 2005. The guilty verdict in the Mike Peterson case didn't come easy. It was hard. It was really hard. And Former juror Ann Pennington says the verdict boiled down to what happened inside the stairwell at 1810 Cedar Street. The physical evidence. The totality marks in her head from the blood that was under the bottom of her feet. Pennington says testimony from a male escort about Peterson's bisexuality was not part of the verdict discussion. She says they also didn't talk about the death of a Peterson family friend. Prosecutors say Elizabeth Ratliff, like Kathleen Peterson, was found dead at the bottom of a staircase. They told jurors Mike Peterson was the last person to see both women alive. We never based our decision on Mrs. Ratliff. Right after the trial, all the jurors said they made a conscious effort not to talk about Ratliff's death once inside the deliberation room. It was enough to deal with all 18 chance state of straight. It was right. enough. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt in Durham, North Carolina on BBC Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. Now, I want to play you a small part of the interview I did with Michael Peterson. I'll explain more after you've listened to this. We've had some email exchange with your sister, with Anne (laughs) Christensen. And this was in um, one of her replies to us. Let me just read you this and then we'll have your response. She said to us in writing, my brother has murdered two women in a bloody and brutal way. He is free now. He is a dangerous person. I grew up with him. So you can understand that I am very wary to give an open interview. I am afraid of him. Why is your own sister saying that about you? Uh, Well, everybody comes from a family. And I think that if they go back and they look at their family history, they... They have different interpretations of of things. All I'll let you know is neither of my brothers, none of my children, no one in the family has spoken to my sister since, uh, when was it? It's been at least 15 years. Uh, I know exactly what prompts my sister's uh, feelings, and I ran it past my brother when we were together in, uh, in Paris and talked to my other brother uh, in Phoenix and said, is this really what it is? And they both said, yeah, Mike, that's what it is. And uh, I just leave it at that. Well, people, um, people have 
fallouts. You know, people have family relations who they don't talk to for a while. There's not many who, in black and white terms, say, my brother is a murderer and I'm scared of him. Oh, well, yeah, well, I just think you would have to know my sister (laughs) to to understand that. Ask my brothers about my sister. Ask my uh, my children or anybody in the family uh, about my sister. I'll I'll just leave it at that. I, I, I have no hard feelings. So I'll let that be their future. Uh, as far as my sister goes, okay, that's fine. That's okay, yeah. That's a moment from the rather tense episode where we spoke to Michael Peterson himself, unedited and in his apartment in Durham. Now, Mark has kept in touch with Anne Christensen throughout the time we've been making Beyond Reasonable Doubt and asked her if she wanted the chance to go on the record about her feelings about the staircase. She did. She wrote a statement, and here it is. I've been asked a lot about the staircase recently because it's trending on Netflix. And so I wrote down some comments. So I think the staircase is a very well done film. It's well edited. The inside look at how the defense is made is incredible with the mock juries, the prepping of the witness, that cello music is really terrific. However, the film only represents one side. I understand that Lestrada only had access to the defense, which is understandable. But to admit well-known facts, such as the fractured hyoid bone in the front of Kathleen's neck, which proves evidence of strangulation, the $1.5 million life insurance policy, Michael's bloody footprint on the back of her pants, showing Dr. Henry Lee spitting ketchup is dramatic, but not showing that his testimony was disproven because Kathleen had no blood in her mouth or her respiratory tract. I don't understand why Lestrada purposely left these and other important facts out other than to create sympathy towards Michael. If people are really interested in what happened, I recommend reading Written in Blood by Diane Fanning. Diane's book is much more comprehensive, and it includes a background story on George and Liz's death. Those are the parents of Martha and Margaret, whom Michael never adopted. That is an important fact. Diane did excellent research into the premature deaths of both George and Liz Ratliff. That's all I have to say, really. I think it was a very good and entertaining movie, but it is nowhere near the whole truth. If anybody wants to know more, I recommend Diane Fanning's book. So thank you for asking. Well, as you know, Diane Fanning has been a guest on this podcast. But I wanted to ask Anne a few more questions. One of the reasons she'd agreed to come on was for her friend Liz Ratliff, the mother of Martha and Margaret Ratliff, who was found at the foot of a staircase in Germany, in the house next door to where the Petersons, Michael and Patricia, that is, lived. The case in North Carolina was all about Kathleen um, and Liz, um, her death being 18 years earlier, um, as I, I just hate to see it, it's getting more, she's getting more and more forgotten. And um, I did know Liz, a very lovely, very lovely, sweet woman. And um, I just don't like that she's being forgotten. So that's what, <laughs> that's what I have to say about that. And, and I appreciate Diane's book because she really did look into Liz and wrote about Liz some more. I knew George. George was a lovely person. And both of them are getting... Um, forgotten about and talking about how Michael adopted those. Michael did not adopt those girls. So why has she decided to speak now? 
part of it is being intimidated by him. I mean, look at him. He's a murderer. Um, but then not being too intimidated that not to speak the truth and, um, and to speak for Liz. Was Michael Peterson an angry man? David Rudolph says he's never seen a flash of anger. He's famous for his anger. He's well known for his anger. Talk to any of those reporters. How didn't he like like yell and push one reporter one day? Look what Julia said. He's he's his anger goes. What Caitlin has talked about his anger. His anger is notorious. <laughs> but is that something you saw as you were growing up as well? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> There's nobody that that will not say if they're lying if they say they know Michael and they've not seen his anger they're lying what was it like growing up with him growing up in my life I admired him because he was so unique he was such a different type of man you know president of his fraternity you know um, I really grew up admiring him because he was a, he was different and I'll tell you now he's different <laughs> he's different And that is how a story begins. Um, listen, if you have, if you are watching the staircase, if you have not seen the staircase, uh, but plan to watch it, switch off for the next thirty minutes or so. That is Ian Lee, a broadcaster and writer who presents a late night show on talk radio here in the UK. A man who, like many of us, got hooked on the staircase and watched it on a flight to New York. And so I tweeted, I've enjoyed this. And loads of you, as you do, said, Oh, Ian, you've got to listen to Beyond Reasonable Doubt, the uh, five live podcast series with Chris Warburton, and um, and it looks into it. And I, I looked at it, and it's like, I don't know how many episodes it is. And I thought, I don't think I can... I can sit through that entire. It's a it's a it's a tough story to sit through twice. But th- but so I listened to the last couple of episodes. One of which they have a recent interview with Michael Peterson. Uh, I must admit, I have gone back. I'm going to go through it again because the Staircase series, I think, is very biased in favour of Michael Peterson. The BBC podcast doesn't quite hint at that. Anyway, enough talking for me. Let's let's get and I'm going to use the word expert, and he's going to dispel that immediately uh, from uh, BBC Five Live. It's Chris Warburton. Good evening, Chris. How are you? I'm, I'm How very, are you? I'm very well. How are you? So I am the honoured guest on Ian's show, and look, I don't include this here for my own vanity. There's another reason. I was attacked by an owl today. Uh, I don't know what type of owl it was because it was behind me. And also, I'm going to be honest, I I wouldn't have recognised. I can't differentiate between owls anyway. I came back from America, from New York, um, and it's very urban there. So I wanted to be within nature. And so I went to this spot and I don't quite know what happened, but I was walking along and then suddenly I just heard this beating of wings and there was the most the most intense pain in the back of my head just intense and it was like kind of like tiny knives sort of in in my head it was incredible and there was just a lot of flapping and i didn't know what was going on i thought i was being attacked by a human so i turned around and there of course there was no one there but the pain and it was a it was a bird had 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 um a raptor had, had clawed itself into my head and so I'm trying to I'm trying to beat it off, and uh, eventually it went, and I was in shock 
That's Ian telling the story of how he was attacked by yes, an owl. After he went public with the story, he was given quite a lot of sympathy by some, but others were well sceptical. And Ian answered his critics. First of all, if you look here, there are claw marks. You see, there are one, two, three claw marks there, and then there's one a little bit further down. Okay, covered in blood. The spatter marks go downwards, and Ian's story made the news. And a certain David S. Rudolph tweeted it with the caption: "If you still have doubts about owl attacks, even after searching for videos of them on YouTube, and judging by Mr. Rudolph's Twitter feed, he's becoming increasingly convinced by what we know on Beyond Reasonable Doubt as owl theory." In fact, in response to another tweet asking him if the possibility of an owl attack would have been used in any retrial, he replied, "Yes, I think so." So there's only one man to turn to: friend and neighbour of the Petersons, the man who discovered owl theory, Larry Pollard. I'm、uh, grateful to David for saying that, and I believe that he would have said that because his investigators, the other investigators for the other lawyers. I've come to the conclusion that the facts that I have been presented explain all of the things pertaining to this incident. It explains the blood splatter on the wall. It explains that you don't have a fall down the step, other than maybe the bottom two steps, and you don't have a beating. It's impossible to have a beating and beat someone to death and not crack the skull. Therefore, how did the wounds occur? And if you follow what I said about getting the blood trail correctly, starting outside and coming inside, you realize、sure. that Mrs. Peterson's hair was soaked in her blood from the three major blood vessels that are on the top、okay. right corner of her head, and would give him enough time to have soaked the hair. And when she collapses into the stairwell, there is your blood splatter. Okay, let me ask you this. Have you seen Michael Peterson since we saw you? Well, a couple of times、uh, last year, Mr. Pollard. Well, not recently. I think I saw him prior、uh, to the when he made the Alford plea. I've talked to him、uh, four or five times, I guess, on the telephone. Michael has called me recently to let me know. He said, "Larry, you need to, to get on this、uh, social media. It's, it's lighting up everywhere. Our theory is on fire." And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Yes." And then I have been getting calls since then from all over the country and around here locally that people are beginning to focus on this—not only the wounds, but the mechanics of how she gets the wounds. And you have this explained to you, and you clearly see it. Then it creates a fact that creates a particular、uh, puzzle of.、Uh, Picture of a puzzle that you can't get out of your mind. It never even occurred to me until I saw,、uh, probably what you saw,、uh, the talons superimposed over the、uh, the wounds on Kathleen's head,、yeah. and that's when I first saw that I was in prison. I thought, oh my god,、uh, and I, oh wow,、uh, that's the first time that I gave it any credence. But we did have owls. I mean, we all know that. Everybody in the neighborhood. Knew there were owls there.、Uh, they used to make my dogs look stupid because they'd be in the backyard hooting, and dogs would run out and bark at them, and the 
dogs would walk back in the house and they'd hoot again. But I never gave it any thought until I really saw the claws on the, the skull. And uh, I don't know, by that time, you know, I'm in prison and I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. All I know is I did not kill Kathleen. There could be an owl. I know that there have been owl attacks. I saw a video on WRAL, the TV, in which you know, the owls, this is videotaped, in which the owls, you know, attack this guy, or maybe it's two guys, knock him down. Uh, so is it possible? Of course it's possible. It's not stupid. And it may explain, because to me, the, the, maybe the main mystery, of course, what happened during the two hours, Michael Peterson between uh, <laughs> between uh, in the in, in the night between midnight and two uh, and two and a half in the morning? Wow, what happened to him? What did he do? And uh, and that's a mystery, yes. But how do you kill someone with this kind of injuries, this kind of laceration? She suffered like 36 different cuts. And and uh, and there was no skull fractures. It's it's really, an, if it's a crime, it's really, really an amazing crime. Something, it's quite difficult to... Um, Makes me want to flip it the other way. And just so ruling things in and ruling things out, wh where are you on the theory that she fell down, simply fell down the stairs and killed herself? I, re I had really hard time to believe that. Oh. Yes, really. Okay. Yes. To me, it was, I would say, if it's a murder, it's a very strange murder. If it's an accident falling down the stairs, wow, it's very strange for down the stairs. So it's huge mystery and and uh, we, there we have to invent something we have to invent a crime or we have to invent a fall or we have to invent something else and maybe maybe the our theory may maybe a solution here we think he's guilty as hell <laughs> uh yeah well um I haven't. We haven't really said, right? And I know I'm. I'm, I'm so BBC. It just runs through my veins. Can I get a one-word answer from you? Final question. Sure. One-word sure. answer, Mr. Pollard. A hundred per. One hundred percent, without any doubt in your mind, is Michael Peterson an innocent man? One hundred percent, unequivocally, yes. For 17 years, this story has filled countless books, magazines, online articles, several TV shows, documentaries and features. It also produced The Staircase and with it, reviewers like Jack Seal in The Guardian. It does continue with the, uh, the same strand of Peterson's character, even after, you know, years of his life have been you know, lost to the trial and, and prison still maintaining that air of slightly enjoying being the lead protagonist in a drama. And that is fascinating right up to the very end where there's that, you know, sort of immediately uh, notorious 
scene where he puts the uh, Leonard Cohen record on and the you know he plays a, a record that kind of maintains the you know it, the title of the record isn't you know maybe I did it maybe I didn't but it might as well be everybody knows that the days are loaded everybody rolls with their fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost He's slightly, slightly playing with the audience, which is an extraordinary thing for a man in his situation to do. So it's it's still got that. I think it's lost some of the, inevitably lost lost some of the drama of, of the original series. And without The Staircase, there wouldn't be this podcast. We know we're part of the industry that has sprung up around this tragic event. And we're grateful, really grateful to all of you who have downloaded it and given us your feedback. But we've never forgotten that the reason we are talking to you is that Kathleen Peterson, a bright, vivacious and successful woman, died at the foot of a staircase in her dream home in Durham, North Carolina, at the young age of 48. She was a businesswoman, a wife, a mother, daughter and a sister. She was an excellent chef. She was actually really amazing at sewing. She tailored her own clothes. Oh... One of the cuter stories, she decided one summer she would make her own bathing suit. She found this really lovely fabric, and she made her own white two-piece bathing suit, except when she dove in the swimming pool, she realized that the bathing suit needed to be lined. You could see through the suit, which would have been quite (laughs) scandalous. So that suit was only worn one time. But she was amazing at being able to sew. Um, When I was in sixth grade... It was quite a trend back then. The Earth Day was coming about, and there was this idea of paper clothing, which you would, you know, uh, make clothes out of paper and then throw them out so you wouldn't be wasting energy with water and soaps and dry cleaning. So there was a contest who could come in with the best uh, paper clothing. And Kathleen made me a beautiful, simple A-line sleeveless dress out of green crepe paper. I did win the award, and then when I got home and took off the dress, my body was totally green. (laughs) (laughs) The dye had melted into or stained into my skin. And then another time when I was in high school, I was taking French, and there was a contest. She was home from Duke then on Christmas break, and there was a contest uh, who could make a French Yule log, which actually is a fairly tricky form of pastry because you have to make uh, like a sponge cake. And I was trying, and it was truly a disaster. It was cracking. It was a mess. And she came in, and she totally made a beautiful Yule log. I won $50, and when I came home and showed it to her, she promptly plucked it out of my hands and said, no, it's mine. I made it. (laughs) And she did. There's what people who don't really know much about the case think and what people who know a lot about the case think. And there's a big divergence of opinion there. If you know a lot about the case, the staircase just made him look worse. If you know nothing about the case, well, you think he didn't do it. In fact, if you watch the last three episodes, if if I were someone watching the last three episodes and, and knew nothing about the case, I would wonder how he got convicted in the first place. Beyond Reasonable Doubt is a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 5 Live.